From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And I feel like I've been around here long enough to remember a time when July was slow, when there wasn't a whole lot going on, when we could kind of take a step back and luxuriate over looking at some spreadsheets and crunch some data and work on long-term projects. It has been another really full week and it kind of begins where it left off last week with the ongoing controversy surrounding Boise State University and uh, diversity programs and inclusive uh, inclusion programs at the university, a story that has really kind of not gone away this past week. No, if anything, um, the story about the letter that House Education member Representative Barbara Ehart wrote to new Boise State President Marlene Trump kind of took on a second life this week. You were able to talk to some key folks. Uh, More people have weighed in. Uh, Dr. Trump has weighed in. The Democrats have weighed in. Um, Let's break down what's happened since we left you last Friday, right, Kevin? You chased the story. It feels like a whole lot has happened since last we spoke on the podcast because when when we spoke about this last Friday morning, uh, there were a lot of pieces that we were waiting for, and you mentioned uh, the first and foremost. We were waiting to see what sort of response came from Dr. Trump, and that response came late Friday afternoon. It's in a story that I wrote, uh, broke late Friday afternoon, sort of trying to connect the dots here of, of this whole controversy and what it all means. Trump's statement, she tried to, you know, she tried to be very conciliatory in the statement. I, I think there was a lot there uh, for for supporters of the inclusion programs, though, a lot there for the for them to rally behind. I mean, a, a sense from from Dr. Trump that she wants to have this campus be inclusive and have right. this campus be safe and welcoming to all participants. She also went on to say that she had already had a meeting scheduled with Representative Behart and was looking forward to hearing her concerns. So, trying to extend an olive branch there. We do know this week uh, via Twitter that Dr. Trump has been traveling the state meeting with legislators. Uh, Dr. Trump is, uh, I think, safe to say the most active university president on Twitter, at least in Idaho, Um, posting a lot of photos, posting a lot of, you know, she got a really good burrito in the Patrick Valley. (laughs) I mean, she's actually a very fun person to follow on Twitter, all kidding aside. But she also talked about that she was going out into the state to meet with legislators on their turf. So I'm sure that that was planned before this firestorm uh, broke out. But I'm sure that because of what uh, what erupted last week, those meetings have taken on a little bit of a different tone and a little bit of a different sense of urgency. So that's what we heard from Dr. Trump. We also heard on Friday from the 21 Democrats in the legislature, all 21 Democrats in the legislature, writing a competing letter to Dr. Trump, welcoming her to the state and urging her to stay the course, to continue programs uh, designed to reach out to uh, non-traditional students, reach out to students from uh, different demographic groups, whether we're talking about uh, Latino students or African-American students or, uh, you know, students, uh, regardless of sexual orientation. The, the message from Democrats was, we need to have an inclusive campus. It's good, for our, it's good for our state. It's good for our economy. It's good for us all in the long term. And making college more exclusive is bad in the long term. So very different visions of this whole issue coming from the Democrats and coming from the 28 uh, conservative House Republicans who signed the initial letter. So 
that's kind of where we are at this point. You did mention um, we're getting more reactions as the story continues to unfold. Representative yeah. Matt Erpelding wrote his own uh, guest opinion on the topic. You can find that at adoetnews.org. Democrat from Boise House, minority leader. Right, um, right. In, in many ways, maybe the most visible Democrat in the uh, in the legislature, uh, speaking out about uh, you know his take on the Idaho way, and that's become sort of this talking point in this whole debate, because that started with Ehart's letter suggesting that inclusion programs, diversity programs, are by their nature segregationist, and that's not the Idaho way. So this whole back and forth has been, well, what is the Idaho way? And you know, along the way in that debate, uh, Governor Brad Little was kind of caught in the crossfire because... Well, he was uh, named in the letter. He was named in the letter as talking about the Idaho way and what the Idaho way means. Uh, little has said very little on the topic. We asked for comment, and all he is saying is that uh, it's it's kind of under review whether anything needs to change. So that's where it stands. Yeah, It's a story that, you know, I don't think I'm going to give away any industry secrets here, we got more page views on a Friday right. uh, in, in July than I think we'll ever get uh, again. The, the story has really hit a nerve with a lot of folks. It's, it's, it's resonated with folks on both sides of the debate. Uh, it, it's a hot button topic. The, the whole idea of campus diversity, the whole idea of inclusion, the whole idea of reaching out to students uh, of different demographics and how do you do that and does that involve uh, use of, of public money to create and foster and continue these programs has become a very sensitive debate. And, and that debate's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, there's going to be a rally at the State House on Saturday. Which we're going to have coverage of. Which we will cover. Uh, students rallying in support of these programs. It's, it's, it, it's a hot-button issue, as we talked about uh, last week. It's really the first test for Dr. Trump as a new president to see how she responds to it. We've gotten a sense of how she's responded to it. But I, I think it's a story that's, that's not going to go away anytime soon. And it's a story that uh, may continue to play itself out even going into the legislative session. Oh, sure. And I mean, it gets right at, I mean, as part of this debate, we're talking about our 60% goal and, and how we increase our go-on rates, how we increase the percentage of our population, particularly our young adults and who hold no, degrees or certificates. And, and there is no way to slice and dice the math and get to 60% without bringing in new right. cohorts of students. You, you can't continue to recruit from that pool that's gotten you to 42% and expect that to grow. No. You, yeah. you, you have to get more students from rural Idaho, from... Uh, from Latino families, from Native American families, uh, first-generation students, students who you know are navigating the college experience for the very first time in their families. You, you have to get all of those groups in, involved. And you know, I had a chance to talk to Scott Green, the new president at University of Idaho, and we'll have a profile of him coming up in, in the next few days. And I, I asked him about the issue. And his take, pretty simply, was it doesn't change what we're doing at the University of Idaho in terms of student outreach. My job, as he put it, is to get more students at the University of Idaho. And if I have to do programs geared to help rural students get to the U of I, I'm going to do that. If I have to do something special for students in, you know, just throughout the Nampa as right. one town, I'll, I'm going to do that. Basically, nothing changed in his view about what he needs to do and how he's going to do it. 
And it's interesting to point out, although he was not directly addressed in University of Idaho, was not directly addressed in the letter, he received a copy of the letter and the Democrats' response as well. Uh, So this is very much on his radar in his second week on the job as well. He was cc'd in the letters, as were the relatively new presidents at Idaho State University and Lewis Clark State College. I mean, yeah. To to get to that point, I mean, we're at a crossroads in higher education. We have all of these new university presidents. We have a couple of new members of the State Board of Education who will be coming online at any point, a new governor. Uh, A lot of new players and a House Education Committee, as you've talked about, as you've written about, that really is trying to flex its muscles and exert its influence over education policy. So There was no coincidence uh, or accident with the timing of all this, is what we're trying to say. No, you know, know, pick your metaphor, a shot across the bow, a brushback pitch, you know, whatever it is, but definitely a strong message from... Uh, House conservatives uh, of how they want to uh, dictate education policy and, and what we're seeing in terms of response from the university communities and what we're seeing from uh, legislative Democrats. Uh, this issue isn't going to go away anytime soon. It's a, it's a very foundational issue to higher education. Right, and people feel strongly about it, and we're going to continue to cover it. We'll have uh, at least one update uh, covering the rally on Saturday. If we get any more reaction from any more officials on Friday, uh, we will also update that. But the best place, if you want to follow the story, maybe get caught up if you missed anything, if you were out on vacation uh, over the last week or so, IdahoEdNews.org, the homepage. We've got several articles. We'll continue to cover it. Mm-hmm. But people feel strongly about this, on yeah. both sides, obviously. Right. But people feel strongly about this. And there's going to be a rally and major players in our political and higher education landscape are caught up in this and are weighing in on this. So it's it's not going away, and we're going to continue to to follow it and follow it wherever it leads. And, and what we try to do with a story like this, especially a volatile story like this, is is try to get as many voices into the uh, discussion as possible. You know, a, a, as many guest opinions. You know, we we're welcoming of all guest opinions from from all sides on this topic and and on any topic. And in our coverage, we're trying to. Uh, incorporate as many voices as possible. Uh, Sammy Edge had a story that we posted on Thursday talking to some students who have been involved in this, getting a a national perspective on this debate because it's not a unique debate to Idaho. Um, My coverage, I've tried to look at uh, the various uh, debate debate talking points from both the Republican lawmakers and the Democratic lawmakers. So we're trying to cover this from as many angles as possible. That will continue uh, Saturday with the rally. And it will continue as this uh, story unfolds. All right. I want to switch gears here. We uh, we talked about how it was coming last week, but you had the chance to sit down uh, with new Boise School District Superintendent Kobe Dennis, 29-year veteran of the district who was recently promoted. Um, you had a chance to talk to him about his role and about how he will lead Idaho's second largest school district into the future. What jumped out at you? Uh, you've met him before and talked to him before, but uh, from your sit-down, talking about the new role and the position, what jumped out at you, Kevin? Well, I think what I'm very curious about after talking to him, and it was a very interesting interview. We covered a lot of ground, and I tried to get it to as much of it as possible in my story at idahoednews.org, was trying to get a sense of how this career educator, this career Boise educator, is going to step into this role as superintendent um, because it's not just a 
community role. I mean, leading a district of 25,000 students and 4,500 employees, that's, that's a big job in and of itself. But as superintendent of the Boise School District in the state capitol, a, a few miles from the state house, that position takes on some added significance. Uh, and we saw over the past few years, uh, Don Coberly as superintendent, he was very visible, very vocal on a lot of statewide education topics, whether it was uh, Propositions 1, 2, and 3 going back a few years, uh, you know, school funding and now in the, uh, the school funding formula debate this year. On a lot of topics, uh, Dr. Coberly was very vocal, very, uh, very prominent. You saw him at the State House a lot during the course of the legislative session. Uh, he blogged. He would do uh, a periodic blog uh, trying to break down education data and you know, sometimes taking us to task if he thought that we were uh, not interpreting the data as he would. He's, he was a definite player mm -hmm. in, in the statewide education debate. As much as any superintendent in Idaho. Probably. Yeah, and the proximity and, and, and has a lot to do with that, as you mentioned. Proximity, but also you know, his experience and also his willingness to yeah. step into the fray. I mean, you know, Dr. Coberly, you know, doesn't mince words on a lot of things. And he, you know, he lets you know what he thinks, good or bad. Right. Um, Kobe Dennis comes into this um, in a, a little bit of a different, I mean, I think his personality is maybe a little bit different. I think he's, uh, by his own admission, a pretty deliberative person. Uh, you know, he'll analyze a decision and you know, take time, and he said, you know, there may be people who criticize me for that along the way. Very process-oriented, very detail-oriented. That's been kind of his niche as deputy superintendent, working on things like the budget, working on things like facilities, and, you know, Boise's got a lot of facilities projects going on because they passed a $172 million bond issue a couple of years ago. Labor negotiations, a lot of those nuts and bolts stuff. That's been Kobe Dennis's niche uh, the past few years, but I asked him, okay, how... Do you see your role in, in statewide education debate? And he said, you know, there are going to be times that you step up and you, you speak for what you believe in, and I'm going to be happy to do that. And trying to, to drill down a little bit further to get a sense of what that might mean, I think maybe one of the most interesting things that he said was when we talked about the funding formula debate and talk about an issue we're going to be dealing with again next legislative session. Here you go, the, the funding formula. He would like to see it resolved. He'd like to see superintendents come together behind something. And that he, he believes that if that happens, if the superintendents are on the same page, legislators will come along and, and pass something. And he said, you know, there's a chance, because it happened last time the state rewrote the funding formula, there's a chance Boise will wind up with less money. And he said, you know, I won't be happy about it, but we can live with it as long as we understand why we're doing this. And I think that's a key point going back to last year's funding formula proposal. A lot of superintendents, and Kobe Dennis was in some of the meetings I took, did not understand right. the spreadsheets and the different fluctuations with the dollar amounts. Uh, so I think that that's a key part of that statement if we understand it, because I don't right. think they did last year. Right. I think there's a there's an understanding that, that needs to be there, and there has to be buy-in. Buy-in, and you get understanding and buy-in by, you know, coming up with something that people can, can, can grasp. And you know, as, as Dennis put it, if I need to go to patrons and explain, here's our situation, we are losing money at the state level, we might need to do something, uh, we might need to uh, levy locally to make up some of that difference or make up that difference. 
And his take was, look, if, if I've got something I can explain, if I've got mm-hmm. something I can articulate, that, uh, that helps. Um, I, think, I think he's probably where a lot of educators are. The idea of trying to put more money into, uh, into helping at-risk yes. student populations makes, makes sense to him. And I think it makes sense to a lot of educators and a lot of education leaders. But like you said, how do you get there? How does this formula work? What, what are all these you know, mechanisms within the formula and do they make sense? That's right. the challenge. So anyway, very interesting uh, interview, I thought, with, with Kobe Dennis. I've tried to capture as much of it in the story. You can check it all out at edoidnews.org. Okay, sounds good. Thanks for that, Kevin. You've been busy uh, looking at uh, the task force and the ongoing uh, meetings of the task force. Uh, one of the subcommittees met again this week uh, talking about kind of the ongoing topic of master educator premiums. A- another sign of... Uh, I don't want to say disillusionment, but uh, another sign of concern uh, about how this thing is unfolding and whether this is a long-term solution. Sure thing. This group, uh, the subcommittee, I want to say they met Tuesday morning, and they're actually the teacher pipeline subcommittee of the task force. So they're very much looking at the issue of uh, teacher recruitment and retention. Of course, it's been a hot-button topic. Of course, that was a big part of the you know, driving force behind the $250 million five-year career ladder salary plan uh, that just got implemented the last legislative session. But, uh, yeah, basically this committee did not make any final recommendations this week, but it sure sounds like the members of this committee have an appetite uh, for discussing potential changes to the Master Educator Premium Program with the legislature when the session opens in 2020. And we've talked about it recently. We've written about it all summer. But the master educator premiums created by the legislature are intended to recognize and reward Idaho's most experienced and effective educators. Uh, With a $4,000 annual salary bonus, which the legislature is calling a premium. And the way it works is if you get it this year, it goes for three years. So the total value is $12,000 added to an educator's salary over the course of three years. A little bit of a rocky rollout. Um, yeah. 1,400 teachers did apply for it, but Which that's compared that's compared to a pool of about eight to 10,000 teachers that state officials are pretty sure would have met the basic statutory requirements to get this. Right. The six years of teaching, the demonstrating the three years in Idaho. Um, so it looks like thousands of teachers left this on the table without applying. It's a first-year program, so to a certain extent, that's not unexpected. That's not shocking. A lot of times programs need time to ramp up. But, um, you know, it, it's come out that the 2019 Teacher of the Year, Mark Badia from American Falls, uh, did not apply for the Master Educator Premium. And he actually briefed this task force subcommittee on Tuesday about the premiums, about why he didn't apply, about saying things like it was cumbersome and time-consuming, and he spoke with educators in American Falls, and, and the consensus was with the people that he talked to was that it's not going to help um, with retention. And, in fact, he said he knows several people who would fit the bill of a master teacher in American Falls in that school district, and three people applied uh, from mm-hmm. his district. So just not a lot of interest. And so, interestingly, we heard... A couple of things I want to point out before moving on. Bill Gilbert, the uh, Boise businessman who's the co-chair of the overall task force, said he would never run a business the way the state is running its master educator premium program, essentially asking top performers to spend 
we're hearing 80 to 100 hours filling out this portfolio to make their own case why they should deserve the salary incentive. He said he would never run a business that and way. And I think that gets to a lot of the, uh, the the consternation about the master educator premiums that that we hear from educators, that we get on our comment queue a lot, is the idea of, with the career ladder, with the salary increases that are going towards beginning teachers, those are not merit pay. Uh, they're, they're based on tenure. I mean, you move along the, the ladder. I mean, I think you have veteran educators wondering, why do we have to go through this application process? Why do we have to prove ourselves to get a raise when uh, younger teachers are not having to, to go through that same process? So for, for Bill Gilbert to say this, for key yeah. legislators to say that this thing may need to be revamped, I, I think there's a critical mass here of, of folks saying this may not be the, uh, the silver bullet. Well, and Debbie Critchfield, the new president of the State Board of Education, also on that subcommittee task force, said we may need to take a long and hard look at a potential third rung to the career ladder. And that's sort of where this all came from. The career ladders, the 2015 era salary law, that $250 million program that I mentioned a minute ago. You know, right now it has kind of two rungs on the career ladder. And there are some performance standards you have to meet to jump to the professional rung and, and get higher pay. But there's two rungs right now, but originally it was proposed with a third rung. Uh, so the first rung would pay out $40,000, second rung pay out 50000 The third rung, which was never funded, never materialized, would have paid out 60000 But it was part of this, and we talked about this before we turned the mic on, but for years now, the state of Idaho and the legislature in particular has wanted to look at some sort of pay-for-performance program uh, for its educators. And I think the Master Educator Program, uh, that $4,000 premium, that aspect of it is sort of pay-for-performance. They wanted a high bar to differentiate the top performers uh, from, the, from the rest of the field. And so I think that's where we're seeing the resistance. Um, you know, we saw it in, in Students Come First. We saw it off and on over the years. But People aren't comfortable, or, or, or some people aren't comfortable with the idea of pay for performance and, mm -hmm. and are fighting. And I think that's where some of this tension is coming from, I would say. Yeah, I, I think so. I think there's a lot of, you know, Let old us, tensions, yeah. a lot of old uh, suspicions about uh, setting up a program like If that. I just do my job, why isn't that enough kind of a thing? Right. And so I, I think the, the, the whole debate is going to probably rekindle during the the course oh, yeah. of the legislative oh, yeah. session. I, I think that what we're hearing, what we're seeing at this point is uh, a lot of folks from a lot of different perspectives saying there may need to be something else uh, put in place for veteran teachers. So we'll, we'll stay on top of it. Um, I think what we've seen this summer and what we've been covering this summer just sort of lays the groundwork of, of a lot of what we'll be dealing with uh, in the next few months uh, and come January when the legislature hits town again. Yeah, unrelated topics. I also took a look at uh, teacher retention numbers. Uh, Randy Schrader, our data analyst, and I dived into some of the data that uh, the State Department of Education has pushed out through its new online school report cards. We have a searchable database on our homepage where you can look at your school district or your school, find out what teacher retention rates have been over the last three years. And retention, real simply, the state uh, for this purpose is defined it as the percentage of teachers from last year who returned to this year. Uh, kind of interesting numbers there. And then we did do an article where uh, I spoke with two educators who did apply for the master educator premium. Mm -hmm. One of them said she... <laughs> worked with her school district and had gotten support over 
a three-year period and was able to knock it out this summer, uh, still teach driver's ed, still raise her family, uh, still have fun and not impact her, her duties to her classroom. And, and so we've got that out there as well. That's a big story and it's very timely right now. Uh, so we'll continue to follow the debate over the master educator premiums and continue to look at the larger issue, which is very much relates to retention and recruitment. Right, right. All right. You can catch up on that at IdahoEdNews.org if you want to find the latest or if you missed any of those stories. But, Kevin, you've continued to take a look at this situation, almost, a, I think it's fair to call it a mess right now, with the Idaho Public Charter School Commission. Why did the governor, Governor Brad Little, tell you that long executive sessions are the devil's playground? That's a great quote. It's, it's my favorite quote of the week. We, we played it up prominently in the newsletter that we emailed out this morning. I can't imagine anybody having a worse Tuesday in education than the uh, than the Charter School Commission did. Um, I had a chance to catch up with uh, Governor Little on Tuesday morning to ask him about this uh, this situation with the Charter School Commission. The quick history here: the commission held an executive session on April 11th. It closed went for door two meeting. hours. Yeah. Closed door meeting criticizing several charter schools for their finances, for the student performance, uh, suggesting that one probably should be shut down or, or re expressing regret that one of uh, the charter schools is still open. That has sparked heated criticism from the charter school community. Uh, they feel like the meeting was was out of line, that the tone was out of line, and I think the meeting it's itself was illegal because they talked about topics that should not have been talked about in a closed meeting. So four, count them, four complaints filed with the Attorney General's office saying that the meeting was illegal. The Attorney General's office is looking into those complaints. At this, uh, at, at this hour, we've not heard anything from the AG's office, but we did hear from Governor Little. When I uh, talked to him on Tuesday morning, he said the meeting was probably illegal. They probably went too far. There were probably uh, areas that should not have been discussed in closed session, and he said, you know, Two-hour executive session, that's a long executive session, that's the devil's playground because that's where uh, you start to run afoul of what the law allows. And you know, what the law does allow a group like the Charter Commission to do is to hold an executive session, a closed-door meeting to discuss data. Well, one of the things that they can discuss is data that's not publicly, uh, that's not subject to public release. So the commission said, well, we're having this meeting, we're talking about sensitive student data that wouldn't otherwise be uh, publicly available. But when you look at some of the test scores that they talked about, some of the uh, student performance, uh, those are numbers that are available on the State Department of Education's yes. website. I mean, I, I link to them in one of my stories. I mean, so that's where it starts to get hazy. That's where it starts to get... Uh, you know, where I think this meeting starts to uh, become quite... And when you talk about numbers in the aggregate and trends and not personally identifiable student data, not what Billy got on his reading test. When you're talking about percentages and publicly available numbers and numbers in the aggregate, that's not something that needs to be withheld or, or, or kept from the public or, or talked about during executive session. Right. Those aggregate numbers are in the public interest because those do tell you how that's schools exactly are performing. That's exactly the kind of the thing. the essence of accountability. That's exactly is, the kind of thing they should talk about in open meeting. And, and, and really, as we write about data, and we write about data all the time here, I'm much more interested in, in the trends. I'm much more interested in the aggregate. It's not yeah. about, well, look at student X. No, that's you know, not what it's about. It never has been. So 
that that's where I think this meeting uh, is. That's the gray area where this meeting uh, comes into play. So anyway, uh, a few hours after I spoke to Governor Little and wrote our story about our interview with him, Debbie Critchfield of the State Board wrote a guest opinion scolding the Charter Commission, saying that the meeting, uh, she, she can't excuse what was talked about in the meeting and that the tone was hurtful, it was demeaning to the schools, and said, Moving forward, the Charter Commission will get training in the open meetings law and training on how to discuss sensitive uh, you know, student topics, sensitive performance topics in a, in a constructive manner. So, uh, And why does that matter? Because the Public Charter Commission is under the, the umbrella board. of the state board. It's also which interesting. Which is under the governor. Which is under the governor, and the governor, I, I believe, is one of uh, three people that has the power to appoint members to the Charter Commission. Right. He appoints the three members leadership. and legislative leaders uh, appoint the other four members. So, so this is sort of up the chain of command here a little bit. Um, yeah, I, th I think, you know, I'm not going to say that the Attorney General's opinion is, is going to be meaningless, because it will be meaningful when we see what the Attorney General says about the legality. It's a legal meeting, opinion, but, that's meaningful. But as, a, but as a practical matter, you've had the Governor and the President of the State Board rebuke the Charter Commission publicly and forcefully on this topic. Um, you know, we'll see how that plays out. And we already still have Charter Advocates, uh, one this week, saying, yeah, that's great, but we still need to clean house on this Charter Commission, and it's really up to Governor Little to do the right thing. And... Uh, and force some changes in the membership of the Charter Commission. You know, it, it feels like one of those stories, you know, like a lot of the stories we've been talking about the, so far today, where I don't think the other shoe has dropped yet. We'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye on this one. Yeah, we'll continue um, to follow it. And I can't remember if we mentioned, but the reason why it came out, why we know what happened during a closed-door executive session, is because that was recorded and then inadvertently released to the public via a public records request from the Charter Commission itself. So it wasn't like someone snuck in and recorded it uh, through some nefarious means. It was actually recorded and inadvertently released along with some more public documents by the Commission itself. That, so yes, that's, how we that's, know, how we that's how we know what happened behind a closed-door meeting. Normally we would never know uh, what happened in a closed-door executive session. So that's why this is a, a little bit different and why we are able to speak to the content of what happened behind closed doors. Um, one more big topic out of eastern Idaho this week. Uh, Teton uh, changed its mascot. Kevin, you blogged about this, followed it a little bit, but uh, following an outcry and a debate that also saw some legislators weigh in at one point, uh, Teton changed uh, it, its mascot. Yeah, I feel like we're going full circle here to another, another hot-button topic. Um, as you said, Teton has gotten rid of the Redskins nickname, which had been in in effect for 90 years. I mean, the board voted four to one to get rid of the nickname with the stipulation that no uh, that no taxpayer money will be used to you know, replace the the nickname, replace the mascot, to uh, replace uniforms, uh, replace the, the the sign on the schools. And so we'll see how that plays out, where that money comes from. But that was, uh, that was a key point. This has been such an emotional issue over the past few years in Teton. There was a push six years ago. The, the superintendent uh, wanted to remove the nickname, ran into opposition from the community, and, and dropped the idea. This time around, you had uh, tribal leaders from the Shoshone-Bannock tribes and the, the Nez Perce tribe urging Teton to get rid of this nickname. And, you know... 
the topic of Native American nicknames and Native American mascots, it's not unique to Teton. I mean, no, we saw it play out in the National Football League. It's, you know, there's an NFL team that goes by the same nickname here. And while I certainly would not uh, pretend to, uh, to be an expert on this topic, and I certainly cannot, you know, speak to it from any, any personal background, I'm not a Native American, what my sense is watching this debate is that this nickname, this this nickname, Redskins, is a particularly sensitive one. It's, it's a slur. It's seen as a slur, and and, and you know, and it's kind of hard to argue that it isn't. And and if members of the Native American community are saying we consider it a slur, I think that testimony, you have to put a lot of stock into that. Yeah, I think you have to put a lot of stock into it. And I think ultimately the trustees did put a lot of stock into it up there. So we'll see how it plays out. Um, and I don't want to read more into the issue than we saw in Teton. I mean, I think I think the Idaho Statesman reported that you have 11 schools around the state that still have nicknames that have some root in, in Native American culture, whether nicknames Indians or Braves or Warriors. Uh, a couple of schools go by the nickname Savages. Um, how, how do you extrapolate off of what happened in Teton to these other schools? I don't know. We've not seen the same sort of um, backlash about a nickname like the Boise Braves as we have seen and seen for several years uh, with the Teton nickname. So new nickname, new mascot. We'll see what that is. We'll see how that plays out. We'll see who uh, winds up paying the bills on this. But really an emotional issue because on the one side of it, you had folks saying, why are we hanging on to this nickname? Native American groups are offended by it. Let's move on with the times. Uh, and some patrons saying this is tradition. We want to hang on tradition to tradition, and some actually threatening to either recall trustees or to oppose future bond issues and levy elections if uh, if the nickname is changed. So it's an emotional issue that probably it, you know we haven't heard the last word about. But you know you know a big big development on this uh, issue on Tuesday in Teton. Yeah, for sure. Uh, It's been a a busy week. I think that was a lot of the big stories I wanted to get to this week. Just to look ahead real quickly to a couple of things that I'm going to be working on over the next week or perhaps over the next two weeks. I'm going to work with our data analyst, Randy Schrader, to crunch the numbers and develop a report on the latest round of teacher evaluations. That's something that we've tracked closely at Idaho Ed News for about, I want to say, five years now. Uh, We do have some preliminary data from the State Department of Education. Uh, We'll get working on that. Also going to sit down with Debbie Critchfield. I've already sat down with Debbie Critchfield, mm-hmm. the new president of the State Board of Education. Uh, going to work on a feature profile about her and about some of her ideas for leadership uh, of the State Board going forward, some of the top issues we face in education. Also going to look at having her on the podcast maybe next yeah. week as well. Um, so some exciting things coming there. Kevin, you already uh, briefly alluded to it, but you have... Uh, you had a big interview this week, and, and you're working on a profile. Right. I've got a profile in the works on Scott Green, the new president at the University of Idaho. With all of these changes, and because we are in summer, it's a good time to introduce you to some of the new players in education, like Kobe Dennis, like Scott Green. We're going to try to do the same thing with Marlene Trump. We'd like to sit down and do a profile with her. So, Dr. Trump, if you're listening to the podcast, uh, shoot me an email or send me a, a tweet and let me know when you might be available. We'd love to sit down and Uh, talk to you and and help our readers get to know you a little bit better. All right. Well, thanks so much for sticking with us. It's been a busy summer, a busy week, and we love breaking down 
Kenan's complicated intersection of education policy, education politics. Uh, thanks as always for listening. You can give us a follow at Idaho Ed News if you're on Twitter. We really appreciate it. But uh, thanks for listening. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week. <laughs>